Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. everyone, welcome back to Talking Tudors, episode 163. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger, and I do hope that all is well in your neck of the woods. Before we begin, I have some important news to share with you about the podcast, so please bear with me. After much deliberation, I've decided to transition the Talking Tudors membership platform from Podbean Patron to Patreon. Among the reasons for this are that Patreon offers multiple ways for me to connect with my wonderful patrons and provides me with the tools necessary to create a truly engaging and interactive community. This change will also allow me to create additional content like exclusive videos, behind-the-scenes pics and vlogs, blog posts, and listener polls. Importantly, it will also allow listeners to pledge their support in their own local currency, which will hopefully avoid any of those nasty bank fees. My podcast remains free because of the generosity of my patrons, so they are tremendously important to me. The truth is, the larger my support base, the more podcasts and fun tutor content I can produce. I have emailed all my current Podbean patrons about this change and would be overjoyed if you'd consider supporting my work on Patreon. Please visit patreon.com slash talking tutors. I've already uploaded 17 patron-only recordings that you will get immediate access to once you sign up. Join the Talking Tudors Patreon family and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. July's prize is a two-volume book set that explores representations of Mary I in writing, in literature and other textual sources. These books retail for $125 each, so a huge thank you to Dr. Valerie Schutte for sponsoring this fantastic prize. All patrons are also eligible to attend monthly Talking Tudors live talks, which take place on Zoom. These events are exclusive to patrons. On the weekend of the 30th and 31st of July, I'll be speaking with Dr. Elizabeth Norton about her book, The Temptation of Elizabeth Tudor, and the distressing events that took place when the young Elizabeth went to live with the newlyweds, Catherine Parr and Thomas Seymour. Now, on to today's episode. I'm excited that Wanda Whiteley is joining me on the show to discuss her debut novel, The Gold Hanger Dog. Wanda is co-author of the memoir Street Kid, which spent three months in the top ten of the Sunday Times non-fiction bestseller list. The Gold Hanger Dog is her debut novel. In addition to her role as founder and editor-in-chief of Manuscript Doctor, she's an independent consultant for writers and artists, and previously worked as the publishing director at HarperCollins for over a decade. This year she will be running her first life-writing workshop at the Atelier d'Escritori retreat in Transylvania. 
Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sales. Welcome to Talking Tudors. Wanda, how are you? Well, I'm very well. Thank you very much. And it's so lovely to have you on the podcast. And I, I think it, a good way to begin is maybe you just introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about your background. I'm not a historian, funnily enough. Um, I'm an English graduate um, who worked in publishing for many years. And now I work with authors. So I teach a lot of historians. Funnily enough, I have some rather famous historian, non-fiction writers who long to get into fiction and make lots of money and then um, need their work critiquing. So that's something I've done for some time. But then at some point I thought, well, it's lockdown. I've never written a fiction title. I've written non-fiction before and um, I'll have a go. I ended up writing a book called The Gold Hanger Dog. It was sparked by a reading of Alison Weir's Children of Henry VIII, I think, or Children of England is the book, um, which I'd picked off the shelf and I was just reading it with an eye to thinking I was going to write for children something to rival a, a sort of money spinner to rival the Roman mysteries that my child was, was reading at, with the school at that point. But in fact, it, it became something completely other and it, it's more like a book for adults and teens rather than the younger children, The Gold Hanger Dog. But there was an episode in that book where it was the first time there was a real tale of what I call daring do because I love all those old smugglers tales and things like Moon Fleet by Jamie Mead Faulkner and all those old books and it was on set on the river Blackwater and it was in 1550 that Mary increasingly being pushed around told she can't have mass held and the rest of it decides that she wants out. So she implores the Emperor Charles to come and rescue her, basically. Um, so they, he does. He actually says, OK, we'll do it. So he sends a fleet of a couple of warships and uh, a corn trading boat, which they basically have this poor chap called Dupuis, I think his name is, who's the um, ambassador um, or the ambassador's man and he poses as a corn trader 
And they sail the ship in and moor it at Stansgate, which is the old Stansgate Abbey, on the Blackwater Estuary. And then he's taken in a, with the corn down further to Malden's Hive. And if anyone's been to Malden, there's a lovely old quay called the Hive with its old church, St Mary's, which was a beacon in its roof to warn sailors. And at the Hive, there's secret meetings in churchyard, in St Mary's churchyard, and all this sort of stuff. Meanwhile, two miles away at Wooden Walter Hall, which no longer exists, Wooden Walter Church still is there, but not the hall, a moated manor, Mary is hiding with her controller Rochester and her lady-in-waiting Clarencio and she is busy stuffing clothes into burlap sacks sort of terrified and they've said she's gonna have to walk the two miles through you know sort of tiny paths to try and get to the ship but she starts getting scared and um Rochester doesn't help whether he actually decided it was better for her to stay put because otherwise she really would stand no no chance of succession when the time came I don't know but he went out and came back and said look the the roads are crawling with watchers because in that at that time people were very jumping and they got ordinary householders employed to actually see if there's strangers around or anything strange is going on. There are beacons, it's looking really, really bad. Um, you'll get caught. So she loses her bottle and says, oh, can we do it two weeks later? And the guy by then is absolutely at the end of his wits. He says, well, I've got to catch the tide. The tide is about to turn. If I don't, they're already, the bailiffs are already swarming all over the, looking at my boat. I've sold the corn. And by now they're going to wonder why the boat's still sitting there. I'm sorry, I've got to go. So that's the end of it. And it wasn't the first time Mary had had a failed escape. There was another time, I can't remember on what river, on the Thames somewhere, she stood there pathetically waiting for someone to come and pick her up who never turned up. So, I mean, she never got away. But the thing that then I thought, well, that's an interesting story. I think I'll set mine on the Blackwater. But then in fact, she does a sort of fault fast, which I found very interesting, which is she, she sort of starts getting a bit of chutzpah. So from being this wobbly character, she does the most extraordinary thing, which is when she's told to give up, even the emperor by then is saying, look, Edward's about to die or whatever, you know, go to an abbey, hide low, get the thee to a nunnery or whatever it is. And, um, you know, you, you save yourself from the tower. There's absolutely no way you're going to win this one. And she thinks, bugger that, I'm going to go and I'm not going to be told what to do. And so there was that side of her. And then she does that extraordinary ride where she's warned on the road from Hunston House down to you know, on her way down to supposedly see Edward, but it's a trap. She's warned and she thinks, right, and they do the extraordinary ride so that, you know, she's she's on a horse for hours and hours and hours, riding, 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 with a group of six or seven of them all the way up to Kenning Hall, stopping on the way a couple of times. But, um, you know, at one point she changes into the clothes of a serving woman and 
finally gets to Norfolk's old castellated sort of, you know, stronghold of Kenninghall. So anyway, that that was really, I thought, goodness, that was a, such an exciting story. So I, I, it all fell into place, really. So then because it's fiction, I had with the Golden Hanger dog to say, right, that's the backdrop, really. I've got to concentrate on my real fictional characters, even though they're going to intermingle with ones from history and work out what trials and tribulations my protagonist, Della, has that are separate, you know, whether it's love story or whatever, you have to be very, very careful as a historical novelist not to let that tapestry backdrop creep into the foreground. If you do that, you're lost, really. You've got to keep your eye on the conflict for your protagonist. And if your protagonist happens not to be Mary, which mine wasn't, then, you know, you, you invent the whole story anew, really. So that, that's a rather long-winded way of saying how it all happened. It sounds fantastic and, and such an extraordinary backstory, as you've already said. And so the story is partly set in the Essex marches. So can you tell us a little bit about what that was like during the 16th century? Do you know, I decided not to visit. I had visited as a child, but I decided not to visit when I was writing because I was worried that all those little mini roundabouts and the rest of it would would stop me from imagining what it might have been like but from what I researched and researched but the the main thing was that the Blackwater which is now relatively quiet you know you see the odd boat but nothing goes on there in terms of craft river craft but back in those days it was extraordinarily busy and busier than the Colne River and Colchester above it because it had a much much more accessible port so um there would be ships coming from Europe, obviously from the Netherlands and places, which would come in, they'd come in and stop at Goldhanger if the tide wasn't right for them. So Goldhanger itself as a fishing village was quite a busy little place where now it's absolutely minuscule and the creeks silted up anyway. So it's not at all like it would have been then because in those days they had a proper... Um, jetty that had been there since Roman times, which is now long gone. So they'd come in, they'd slake their thirst and hang around and visit Doxies and the rest of it at, at uh, Goldhanger Creek. And then they'd go down to Malden and Haybridge and unload everything. And then it was also hugely busy river traffic because of course London had got so big and so needy for food and supplies that they would send great boats down to the Thames estuary so that was an even bigger much bigger part of their trade and of course Essex was hugely rich because it was the home county it was the one that um, was very very sheepy so they had very rich wool trade and the rest of it and Mary owned quite a bit of it in those days she'd inherited lots of the dower that she'd got after Henry died was in Essex so she had her places but also there were the new rich I keep thinking of them as Russian oligarchs um, but the English version so there was a whole new rich because there it had where the older feudal system had long since gone really there was new modern banking a whole new capitalist system had come up and also like the oligarchs these were guys who had shared out the spoils. I mean, Henry's cronies, the rest of it, it was cronyism, kleptocracy, the whole lot. And there were the big houses there. So you had, let's think, we've got 
well, Leeds, the one who comes briefly into my book is Richard Rich, obviously, at Leeds Priory. Um, he was one of the big land grabbers when the monasteries fell. And if you remember the monasteries, I mean, they, the, the church land was a quarter of the land of England. So it's a lot of wealth they all shared out. There were all these big magnets around, but they were tough. And around this time, there had been all sorts of awful things going on. Um, there'd been two harvests that had failed in a row. Sometimes there are three, but that's very rare. But two failing in a row, which I think was 1950 and 51, um, had meant that, you know, people actually starve. And so there was a lot of hunger. They had changed all the trading laws around wool. So the cloth trade had taken a huge, and the wool trade had taken a great, big nosedive and then they of course had galloping inflation thank you Henry you know so there was all this going on so there was a real sort of rich and poor gulf very like what we have today so I felt that you know there were so many parallels uh, emotional parallels as much as anything else and having someone Della the protagonist from the lower orders was important because she's got a lot of you know vim and vigor even though she's a girl who is hounded very much for being different and she rounds on them she ends up taking sanctuary at New Hall which was Mary's palace um, which her father called Bewley but I think was already being called Newhall again by then. And um, Newhall near Chelmsford in Boreham, Della ends up seeking sanctuary there for various reasons with her little turnspit dog who she's rescued. And um, she feels out on a limb and rounds on the love interest Fitz at some point and says, you know, you're all sitting here with all this wealth, with everything you need, all these fish ponds and this and that and estates of deer paddocks and people well my people are eating horse bread acorns you know what you know you just can't because he tried to say I can I can try and imagine what it's like and she said you can't imagine what it's like so that that's really the background so you you've talked a little bit about the people some of the real life people that have obviously mm -hmm. inspired you Richard Rich you mentioned Edward VI Mary was there any other personalities that we might have heard of that perhaps have inspired some of the characters in your story sometimes you decide it's easier to have a fictional character but the one where I sort of had in mind which is why I put my antagonist a man called Talon Sir John Talon is not a real man, but I sort of vaguely took a character who was called Darcy, um, Thomas Dar Sir Thomas Darcy. And I don't know a lot about Darcy, to be honest, but I did find out he lived in Tolstant Darcy, where I have my chap having his hall. And he was uh, related by marriage to the Earl of Oxford, who also had a townhouse in Malden, which is now the Blue Boar Inn. And those two do appear, but Darcy isn't talent. But at some point, Darcy was cut off the nose of um, the Earl of Oxford's mistress. And I thought that was just such a ghastly thing to do, which is what you do for prostitution. But, you know, I thought, what an absolutely horrible man he sounded. So he's buried at St. Osis and uh, is just would have been a local landowner, lieutenant, the rest of it. And he was 
keeper of Colchester Castle, having taken over from, I think, his father-in-law, that Earl of Oxford, in uh, 1540. And so in my book, Darcy, uh, Talon is keeper of Colchester Castle, and we have a great scene there where my girl Della goes to challenge him. And in the past, the backstory is that uh, Della's father was hung by um, Talon uh, for being one of Kett's rebels, because they did in real life, um, there was a religious guy, whatever you'd call them, who came down preaching, uh, telling them about Kett. And so it did spread to Colchester. And in fact, there were three men that were hung, uh, hung out at the, cast, at the uh, city gates. And so I've made it that one of those, and Darcy and the Earl of Oxford, the second one, had signed his death warrant or whatever it was, uh, the, the three men's death warrant. So in mine, Talon is the one that effectively was responsible for the death of the father of Della and after that had taken the family farm. So she's got, it's really personal. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and you mentioned a turnspit dog. So do you want to just tell us what that is in case some people listening don't know and why it was such a staple of the Tudor kitchens? Right. Well, I'm not actually sure at this point. In fact, I have my Tazbit dog being an invention, uh, a sort of mechanical invention by Talon's ghastly gamekeeper. But the Tazbit dogs, certainly by later Tudor times, were in use. And uh, they are now extinct. They're a pathetic, pathetic, sad little breed of very uh, ugly they were sort of short-legged with bow legs like a mole with very powerful front legs. And they, they had a terrier-like face and they were quite small. But because they had the most terrible life, because they were shut in a wheel and stuck on the wall, a cage-like wheel, stuck on the wall next to the hearth. And if you remember how absolutely boiling those kitchens were. And they'd have to, and the, the wheel was attached to the, t the spit, the roasting spit, by pulleys. And the dog had to walk, 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 walk for hours, turning the wheel so the pulleys, so they were effectively before that happened, the scullions had to do it. And then after that, this poor dog had to do it. And so um, when the, yes, uh, so they were used late Tudor times and there are references, Ben Johnson has a very good reference to them, but they're largely forgotten now. They died out in the very early 1800s, I think, because nobody, like any breed, no one wanted them. They were too ugly and they had a very, very, cross morose pathetic character because all those years they'd had such a horrible life so they weren't they didn't make very good family pets but I said if anyone had known how loyal and magical a dog like this could be so Turnspit is really I think the secret hero of the book I've been told because he is full of character and if anyone loves their dogs he is a very good dog and there is an element of magic because this this book does have a strand of magical realism and he he does he doesn't he's not a talking dog or anything like that but there are things that the girl realizes she thinks when she first sees him in the wheel and she thinks I've got to save you he the dog looks back at her and think and she says oh my god I'm think he, he's looking at me as though he thinks I'm here to help you and she said well that's 
pretty odd because I would have thought it's him that needs my help. But he is, he's there to help her. And he's a, a really great little character turned spit, the gold hanger dog. Oh, I think that will appeal to lots of people, lots of dog lovers. That's great. And what about some of the challenges that you face when writing about this particular time period or writing historical fiction or anything at all? Could you tell us about some of those? I think the biggest challenge is where you have to bend the truth. And I know my husband used to say to me things like, why are you worried about it? You know, why are you worried how long it takes to go in a horse and cart to Colchester? You know, you've got these blinking flock of magical ravens who come to help her at Kenninghall. And uh, I think, no, no, it's not that. You sort of have to remain true. And in fact, I'm sure there are ridiculous things where I know I've compressed time and there's no way she could have sailed up the coast to Lowestoft probably in the time she manages to um, because it is a fast-paced adventure story as, uh, in the last third particularly but I think the challenges are I think you do have to do all your research and then you have to put it aside um, so memory is one of them because you're constantly thinking oh god what happened then but if you start piling what they call exposition that is undramatized into a book. And many a historical novelist is guilty of that fact, in my view. It's no longer a novel. It really isn't. It's it's a halfway house. So I think it's terrible. You get very excited. And I did have lots of readers, and there's a bit where she and her the mat, the boy she loves, the groom Fitz, who's also an acrobat, uh, a player. Um, Fitz is they go into the woods for their first sort of ride and and I digress you know I talk about the drive hunt and I go into the screens of the drive hunt and da 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 and into conversation and it's interesting when you've got readers when you bother to have things read by enough honest good reviewers they say well I got bored of that bit and they don't always know why they get bored of that bit but if you're honest with yourself and you know the pitfalls you go through and ah it's the drive hunt you know um so you have to be really careful and then you have to kill all those little darlings which is what they say cut it out and keep it spare but you've got to inhale the period so that it just comes out organically be careful not to stuff in everything that you know about because it loses potency in my view so that's really the the challenge I think research I think what I realized was that I loved doing historical work because I don't think I'm the sort of writer who is one of those that, whose head is flooded with ideas and people that just come in all day and night now oh, I've got another story and another story I'm not like that and so I found research sparks the imagination I found if I sat down and I was advised by my husband who also writes he's I said I'm stuck I've not got an idea here and he said well research 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 and you get writing so for instance the very last I knew the beginning wasn't as I wanted it and because it needed to engage, particularly if it was being read by young people of 12 and things, at, uh, engage the emotion right away with something exciting. So I decided to put a prologue at the beginning, which was Della first discovering her gift, but the reason she discovers it is her mother gets sweating sickness. 
And I thought, how do I do this? But of course, you know, you look up sweating sickness. So you think, right, how do I, how does the imagination find its way here? Looked up sweating sickness and it's all very clear. You know, it start, started with a feeling of trepidation. Then, you know, you, you started feeling this and you got thirsty and, and so on and delirious and so on. But it allowed me to think that that feeling of, trepidation and I know exactly what that is you sometimes get it it's like a goose has walked over your grave and you you do sometimes get it before getting ill and you don't you know it's like your chicken little and the world's about to fall in your head and Della first notices something's off with her mother who's normally a very definite person and never loses the train of thought or anything she's a strong character and the mother at breakfast that morning sort of just loses it slightly and starts talking about Talon, which she never normally mentions and is worried about where Della will go if she would die and that whole sort of mood. So all you you need to do is do the historical work, research and something sparks the actual story. And a final question for you, just about the highlights. We've talked about some of the challenges. What were some of the highlights during the, the research and writing process for you? Some of the highlights, I, I think actually going out there and seeing the places, I had no idea how much, once you've got into the characters, how much then seeing the places they would have lived, the documents they would have written and the rest of it. So just going to Ch- Chelsea Old Church and seeing the old tomb of Northumberland's wife and thinking, oh my God, you know, they're in my story or whatever, and and there it is. So I think that that is bringing history alive is because my mind had already gone on that imaginative inventive journey, then it was so exciting. And going to Oxborough Hall, Sir Henry Beddingfield, he is the first chap who comes with his militia or whatever, it would have been a smallish thing, um, to Kenning Hall, because people from the local bits who were pro-Mary all came with that whatever private armies they could to help. And he comes onto the scene, and in my book, Della's in great peril when this wafty-tafty Sir Henry arrives with his soldiers. And so his standard being dragged by the trusty turnspit dog. Anyway, in that, going to Oxborough now, it's a well worth visiting. It's got, it's one of the really small National Trust houses in that it's got no, it's got a few goodies, but it's not one that brings in a huge amount of tourists. They don't have a shop, barely have a cafe. And, but when you go there, there are a few things under glass and one of them was the first document that um, she signed at Framlingham as Mary the Queen and there it is you know and he would have had that copy and so yeah things like that you get this incredible thrill. Yeah they're very powerful moments aren't they that they keep me flying back to England all those hours because of those special <laughs> moments so I totally understand you and wonder are you working on any new books at the moment? I'm thinking about I sort of I'm thinking about either a part two if the gold hanger dog doesn't sell enormously well then people always say oh don't do a sequel that would be ridiculous um although in my head I would like to do the same because I would like to cover the Wyatt Rebellion which is another wonderful tale of failed you know sort of daring do but 
If not, I've been thinking about Catherine Parr and Chelsea Place, but to do it a bit like they did in Longbourn. So again, the main characters wouldn't be the ones in the house. It would be below stairs. But uh, beyond that, I've really enjoyed going to Newhall and talking to all the students there. I had 200 and I love public speaking, absolutely love it. So, and I love talking to that age group. So I'm going to try my best to get more gigs at schools um, because I've been told again and again by publishers that that age group don't like history, won't read British history, would never touch it, would never buy it, would never read it. And I'm longing to prove them wrong. So, um, yes, yeah, so I think I need to really work now to do to use book one to to get it to do that because I want to make history alive for that next generation. It, it would break my heart because I know it's there for them. I know they are interested really. And the, the trouble is, um, now this isn't being mean, but publishers are doing nothing but putting out rubbish um, that is by the next TV, merchandising, whatever. And uh, some of, there are some, because a lot of them are clients of mine, there are some fabulous writers who aren't getting taken on and some real rubbish that is being published. So, you know, we have to keep flying the flag for real quality historical fiction. Absolutely. And if there's any schools or teachers listening, you know, get Wanda into your school to talk to the kids and, and, and that would be yes. really great. <laughs> yes, you can find me at wanderwhitely.com if there are any teachers right. as you say, or you've got a kid, that would be great. Yep, fabulous. And I'll put a link to your website on the show notes so it's nice and easy for everyone to find. Before I let you go, I've got one more question for you. I ask all my guests for a Tudor takeaway. So this is something for our listeners to go off and explore after the episode. So do you have a suggestion for us? Well, it's a slightly weird suggestion and it's probably not. Um, I My book starts with chapter one with Della and her guardian playing Merrill's and we bought a set of Merrill's that's Nine Men's Morris. Uh, Nine Men's Morris was was Shakespeare actually so at the time I think it was called Merrill's from the Roman. This is a game a bit like a giant sort of noughts and crosses really um, and uh, I was absolutely loved on board the Mary Rose there's a broken barrel top with the Merrill's scratched in the board game scratched into it and all over the world there are Merrills from prehistory virtually they've got them in Egypt um, and people have scratched them on churches a bit like hopscotch or something it was just easy to do and um, so I do go out and find these old board games they're absolutely fascinating but I think Merrills a bit like noughts and crosses isn't as exciting as all that it's fun to try a few times but that card games unfortunately we don't really know what primero was uh, except it was close to poker mary herself adored playing cards and betting and doing bowling and the rest of it she loved gambling but the one i would say try because i did I play it the whole time with my 16 year old daughter is piquette the best card game for two people and there are instructions online play piquette and you will love it so tudor tudor games are great fun to investigate um so that's my little takeaway 
That's fantastic. I'm going to have to go and Google that after this and see who I can rope into playing with me, which family member is going to be my victim. Thank you so much, Wanda. It's been so lovely chatting with you and hearing all about your book. And I wish you all the success in the world. And hopefully we see that sequel soon. Thank you so much. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon.